0: Vasudeva sutam Devam Kamsa Chanuram Devaki Paramanandam Krishnam Vande Jagat guru. Before we start, a quick announcement. Um, next week there won't be any classes. The Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday classes are cancelled. Uh, there's the World Parliament of Religions, which is going on in Toronto now, so I'm going there day after tomorrow. So, Tuesday class, uh, Wednesday class, and Friday classes are cancelled. But of course, the day after tomorrow, the morning program is there. I'm here giving the talk. Um, so, especially the next week's Friday. Gita class. It won't be there next week, but the week after that, of course, there will be the class again. We were studying the Bhagavad Gita second chapter, where Sri Krishna is teaching about the real nature of the self. And we studied the 16th verse of the second chapter. I mentioned that it's a difficult verse, a very profound verse. Let's chant it again, and then we will proceed. Sixteenth verse Nasato vid diate Nasato vid diate Nābhāvo Nabavo vid diate sata Nabavo vid diate sata Uba yoropidrish tanta a very profound verse, which says that the, um, the unreal, the false, never really existed. And the real, the, ulti- the, the real self, the Atman, what we truly are, it can never not exist. So what he's basically saying is, the entire world of experience all those things which are created and destroyed, for us, they appear to exist for some time. This world, our bodies, our people we know, they appear to exist for some time, but that's an appearance. That's what has been pointed out. And do you remember the underlying logic of this approach? That a distinction was made between an intrinsic property and an accidental or incidental property. And do you remember the example that I used about the potato being boiled and it's hot and um, the water boils and the water is hot and the pan in which the water is boiling, that's hot. But none of these things are hot in themselves. Uh, They gain heat and then they lose heat. Whereas the fire underneath is always hot, as long as it's burning, it's always hot. So the pan and the water and the potato, they all borrow heat, as it were, from the fire. Why is it were? They actually do borrow heat from the fire and they lose heat also. So the heat is an extrinsic or an accidental property for these the pan and the water and the uh, and the potato. And notice the nature of an ex- accidental property or an incidental property. It comes and goes. I give the example of borrowed money, buying things on on credit. So it comes and goes. It's borrowed. It doesn't belong to, to that entity. Which means the lesson we take away, the principle we take away from it is that accidental or incidental properties are those which are not intrinsic to the very nature of a thing. They come and go. A thing can be with it and can be without it also. And can can possess it for a time being. So what? If this is understood, now apply it to existence itself. Applying it to existence, what will happen if, if existence is an incidental property? Sounds very philosophical or abstract, but it's not. Remember, incidental properties are gained and lost. If existence is an incidental property, it will be gained and lost. What is the meaning of gaining existence or losing existence? It simply means being created and destroyed. Being born and dying. Coming into being and going and losing existence. Coming into existence and losing existence. In other words, what do you call a thing which is created and destroyed, born and dies, impermanent. In Sanskrit, anitya, impermanent. So what did we derive from this? Those things which are impermanent do not have existence as their, in, their intrinsic nature, as their very nature. They borrow existence. Now two interesting things come out of this. Um, that oh, There is space here also, I think. You can sit here, I think there's space here. Right, okay. Two things come out of this. One is, what do they borrow existence from? Are you with me so far? Yeah. I, I always, this is a difficult subject. Um, if you get the hang of it, it's not difficult. I give the example of, you know, in the Tintin comics, uh, <laughs> we used to read, read as kids, there, is, there was this Professor Calculus. Those, yeah, I can see some people nodding. You've you read it. So Professor Calculus is explaining some complicated nuclear reaction uh, to uh, Tintin and Captain Haddock and Thompson and Thompson. They're, they're, so they're walking along. And, at, at one, and you can see Captain Haddock scowling because he can't understand what's going on. And, and Professor Calculus looks back and says, uh, do you follow me? And the captain scowls and says, yes, I'm right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> so no, not follow me in that sense. What does it mean to gain existence and lose existence? What does it mean in that case? Two things it means. One is that these things are not intrinsic. Existence is not intrinsic to in the impermanent entities, which by which we mean everything in this world is impermanent. Everything in this world is impermanent. And... That means they have borrowed existence, one. The second thing is, it means it has borrowed existence from something, there must be something which has lent existence, which has existence as an intrinsic property. Which really, uh, what would it mean to have existence as an intrinsic property? Remember, fire has heat as an intrinsic property, which means as long as fire is burning, there is heat. If something has existence as an intrinsic property, if it has an incidental property, it will be born, it will die, it will be created and destroyed. If it has existence as an intrinsic property, what will happen to that thing? Do you remember? It will always exist. Fire has heat as an intrinsic property. It's always hot. If something has existence as an intrinsic property, it will always exist by that logic. Now one might say that um, all this is fine but um, in the real world very interesting the use of the word term uh, the term real real literally means existing. In the existing world where is such a thing? Something which has intrinsic existence which exists forever which is not born and destroyed. And then do you remember Shankaracharya pointed out we we did a close reading of of Shankara's commentary on the verse. He pointed out Sanghata, sanpata, sanhasti, the pot exists, the pot is, the house is, the elephant is. House, pot, elephant are different. They're different from each other. They, they, they are not the same thing. But in each of them, we have the intuition of existence. Is, is. We don't pay any attention to it. He said, if you remember, our experience has this dual nature. All our experience, everything in our life has this dual nature. Right now, for example, you are experiencing um, that I, I am here and uh, this is a room and here is a chapel, here is a swami, there is speech going on, there is some sound going on, I am thinking, listening. But rem- these are all experiences you are having now. But Shankaracharya pointed out each of these experiences has a dual nature. One part is the thing which you are experiencing. The other part is the existence of that thing. Notice, I I, I am, look at the word am, it means existence. The room is, the chapel is, speech is. How do you experience speech? Do you experience it as existing or non-existing? You obviously do not experience anything as non-existing because if it was non-existing, you wouldn't experience it. So literally we experience everything we experience is pervaded by isness, a sense of being. And Shankaracharya takes pains to point out it is very well established in your experience. You're actually experiencing it. Existence. And it's an interesting thing. If you're experiencing, so if you experience a book, there is a book and you're experiencing it. If you're experiencing existence, there must be something called existence. Let me repeat that. If you're experiencing a book, there must be something called a book which you have in your experience. If you're experiencing existence, there must be something called existence which you are experiencing. So there is this one underlying isness which Vedanta calls pure being, sat. Pure being, existence. Literally, sat means pure being. Isness, which is always available to us, which never goes out of existence. And do you remember um, we had all those interesting questions? If a pot is destroyed, so the pot is not. And Shankaracharya would say, first of all, the broken pot is. The isness continues in the broken pot, and there are other pots. So you suppose all pots are destroyed. Well, there are there's the cloth and there's the house. And then there was a very interesting question. Suppose everything in the universe is destroyed. Where will existence be? And then very interesting conclusion was all these things in the universe, all names and forms, they manifest existence. If the names and forms are gone, existence remains, but there's no way of appreciating it. All these things we discussed. So the conclusion was in this world of experience, whatever we are experiencing in the world, there is an isness which is permanent, which is not born, which does not die. That never goes out of existence. It cannot, logically. And there is this continuous stream of appearances, things and places and people and events, our own bodies and minds and thoughts, which come and go, which pop in and out of existence. And they borrow existence and they appear to exist for a while. Then they lose existence and they go out of they, they die or are destroyed. And the conclusion being I am that pure existence. I am that infinite, that unlimited existence, always experienced. And every other thing in the world, that other thing, other than existence, in itself it has no existence. They are all appearances. They are what is called mithya, the false, the apparent. And it said, the one who is clear about this, this is the Jivan Mukta, the enlightened while living. This is the goal of Vedanta, to live like this. That I know my real nature and everything in the world is an appearance in me. Nothing in the world can shake me because I am beyond death, I am beyond change. The real me, not the body, not the mind, not this little person. So the enlightened person is very clear about these two. He said the ones who are enlightened, they know these two separately. What are the two? The real pure being, which I am. And appearance, name and form. Which appears in me and disappears in me. These two are very clear. For the enlightened person. Now, moving on. Seventeenth verse. So it is a very philosophical verse, but what is the practical conclusion of that verse? What what follows? Seventeenth verse. Avinashi tu tadvidhi, avinashi tu tadvidhi. Yena sarvam idam tatam, yena sarvam idam tatam. Vinasham abhyasyasya. Vinasam abhyayasyaasya nakash marhati kartu marhati But know that by which all this is pervaded to be imperishable no one can bring about the destruction of this immutable principle. If there are two things one which is pure being which is the one which truly exists and the other appearance which never exists did not exist in the past will not exist in the future and even when it seems to exist right now because of borrowed existence it has no intrinsic existence it's just borrowed it from pure being so these are two things now if the appearance the world of appearance names and forms maya this samsara To what category does it belong? Sat or Asat, pure being or appearance. It belongs to the category of appearance. And what did the earlier verse say? Pure being never goes out of existence. And and appearance never really comes into existence. In other words, all that truly exists is pure being. Brahman, Atman. And what seems to exist right now? This never no, not, does not actually exist. What what is existence here is that pure being, which means this world has no existence, and what seems to exist here is because this is none other than that pure being. I'll repeat that pure being alone exists, but we experience it as this world. The example which I liked very much was in we were in Canada. Um, It was last year, I think, uh, in Loon Lake, the beautiful place in British Columbia, and there was a spiritual retreat there. And if you get up early in the morning before any wind blows, it's very still, and the water is very, very clear. It's a vast lake surrounded by dense forests and uh, hills. So you can see in the early morning light, if you look, the water seems absolutely transparent. And if you look into the lake, What will you see? Not water. What appears to you, sky and hills and forests, even if birds fly, you can see all of that. But in the lake, what is there? Are there forests there, trees there, birds there, mountains there? No. It's just water and water and water. The trees are water, the mountains are water, the sky is water, the birds flying are water, everything that you see, there is water. In fact, when you look inside and see your own face, it's water only there. It is water alone which exists really. But what you are experiencing are things, people, entities, even actions, birds flying around and all of that. Exactly in the same way. But remember, in this this is an example, don't extend it too far. Because example, there is, there is really a, a world outside which is being reflected in that water. So don't stretch it. Is there a world which is being reflected in Brahman? No, in the case of Brahman, pure awareness in which it appears. Pure being and pure awareness. It can project by its own, let us say, maya. It, can, it is colored by the appearance of samsara. So it says, here itself, when you are experiencing the world, what follows is number one, here itself is that brahman. Pervading all of this. Avinashitutadvidu, uh-huh. that indestructible, that pure being, Know it, where? Yena sarvam idam tatam A very beautiful phrase By which all of this is pervaded All of this is pervaded by that But then why don't we all of what? All of this experience What we are experiencing right now All of it is pervaded by that Brahman which you are But then you might ask why don't we see it then? Why don't we experience it as such? In the water In the case of the lake if you pay attention, you can see the water also. You can notice that it is water. But why don't we see Brahman, pure being then? Why don't we experience it? He uses a word, Krishna uses a word here, Tat. Now, Tat means literally means that. And if you see the play of words, Sarvam idam. In Sanskrit, idam means this. Tat means that. So what? this you know a little bit of uh, sanskrit grammar here this the word this is always used when it's something is immediately available for experience for perception so you can see it hear it smell it taste it touch it so you, you call it this this thing which i see or hear or smell or taste or touch and we generally use "tat" that for something which is remote which is not immediately available to your senses that place and this place. This place is something here, that place is something there. In English also we use this and that. That is remote and this is approximate. In Sanskrit, paroksha, aparoksha. Paroksha or pratyaksha. Pratyaksha means available to the senses. By using the word that, for for what? For that pure being. Krishna is indicating it's not available for your senses. Just as the world is available for your senses. You can see it, hear it, smell it, taste it. You can interact with it. All the time, you are hearing, smelling, tasting, names and forms, but it's given reality by that being. But that is not an object for senses. It's, be, it's not something that you can see. It's not something that you can hear or smell or taste or touch. It's beyond the senses. Upanishad say adrishyam, literally invisible to the senses. Agrahyam. It is not an object for your motor organs. That means you cannot walk to it or grasp it. So that's why the word Tat has significance here. Then he uses a beautiful phrase. Yena sarva midam tatam. By which all this is pervaded. Very beautiful phrase. It makes all the difference between high philosophy and a living philosophy. Between abstraction. Beautiful abstraction. Very clever philosophy. And a living philosophy available to all of us. (inaudible) Yena sarvam idam tatam. See, one might say, what is available to me? What is available to me is this world. Not your abstract philosophy. And he says, yes, by that thing which we spoke about, this world of yours is pervaded through and through. It's available right here. Yena sarvam idam tatam By which all is that, is that pervades everything All this is pervaded by that pure being One might ask How is it pervaded? Because Pervading might mean Here is a room It was dark And we switched on the lights So the lights have, light has pervaded the room But remember Light is something different And the room is something different The room can exist without the light And lights also can exist without a room. So room and light are two different things. And one can pervade the other. Or another way, sometimes we we light the incense here. So you light the incense here, the fragrance pervades the room. So fragrance is one thing and the room is something else and one thing pervades the other. Is Brahman pure being like that? is there a world and then brahman enters it like smoke or like fragrance or like light it could be like like it pervades and it's not a silly idea it's a a profound philosophy sankhya says that sankhya says there's a material universe pervaded by the light of consciousness it will there'll be a duality is that what krishna means no how do you know he doesn't mean that? he's, he's already said it in the sixteenth verse. only one of them exists, the other appears to exist. If both of them existed, see the incense and the room both exist in our example. the light and the room both exist. there's a duality. In Sankhya, consciousness and matter both exist, independent of each other, they interact. But here he says one exists, the other one borrows existence from the other one from the first one. So It is not like that. Then what is it like? It's like that Loon Lake example I gave you. In the lake, the trees and the sky and the rocks and the hills, they don't exist. They appear. What exists is only water. And water pervades that entire scenery there in the lake. Snow of all shapes, all are pervaded by the same water. Ornaments, golden ornaments of all shapes and sizes and types, varieties, all are pervaded by the gold. Uh, waves in the ocean, clay in the pot, classic examples in Vedanta, clay in the pot, all, all kinds of pottery. Pottery barn, huh? Amsterdam Avenue, it's there. So It's pervaded by clay, all are pervaded. But just how are they pervaded? It's not that there is a pot and clay walks in there, hello Mr. Pot, I'm going to pervade you. No. The pot is virtually constituted of the clay, through and through. The waves are constituted of water, through and through. Icebergs are constituted of of that that water, through and through. No matter what the shape or the size uh, or the form, ornaments, extraordinary variety of forms, all pervaded through and through by one substance, called, In the same way, Brahman, that pure existence, Pervades everything that we experience, through and through. Mm, the nice t- phrases they use in the Himalayas and among the monks, you, you can appreciate it. I'll, in Hindi, they are very effective. I'll get, tell you in Hindi and translate it into English. This pervading everything, pervaded by God, through and through. I'm using the word God as the absolute Brahman, pure being. The word, the phrase they use, Thasathas <laughs> Bharpur. It's a, it's a very homely phrase. Bharpur means filled up. Tasaras means packed. There's not the slightest space for anything else left. There is, in Brahman, there is not the slightest space for any samsara. In the lake, where I saw all that, is there any space for mountains and trees? No, it's full of water. Have they parted? and given it can come and trees can come and stay here and sky can be here and the mountain can be here no so it is pervaded in that way pure being pervades our experienced universe in that way now this this um, phrase by which all is all this is pervaded yena sarvam idam tatam tatam means vyaptam in sanskrit vyaptam means pervading this comes three times in the Bhagavad Gita. And in the context is beautiful. Um, once it comes here, the 17th verse of 2nd chapter, the other time it comes in the 22nd verse of the 8th chapter. Its uh, 22nd verse is... Purusha sapara partha bhaktyalabhyastu ananyaya yasyantasthani bhutani yena sarvam idam tatam yena sarvam idam tatam it says that there is the transcendent being who can be attained only by devotion by one pointed devotion by love in whom all beings exist ...by which this entire world is pervaded. Who are they talking about? They're talking about God. Do you see the interesting thing? In the second chapter, who is it talking about? He's talking about you. You are that pure being. Because the whole subject was the self, Atma. And he's using this exactly the same language to talk about God. Because when he uses the term Bhakti, by one-pointed devotion... Whom do you have one? I know we have one-pointed devotion to ourselves, especially here in Manhattan. <laughs> I, me, mine. But one-pointed devotion is usually meant for God. He's using exactly the same way to talk, same language to talk about God and you, the real you. You are the transcendent being, pure existence by which the entire universe is pervaded, which constitutes the existence of the entire universe. One. And many, many, I don't know how many months it will take when we come to the 8 chapters, 22nd verse, we are far away. There he is talking about God, devotional. Yeah. And he says there is such a thing. One-pointed surrender and devotion, you will realize that reality, that transcendent reality, para purusha, the, the transcendent being by which all, in which all beings exist And you can understand exactly how all beings exist in that. Because that is pure being. And by which all is pervaded. Exactly the same verse. But how do you attain it? By love, he says. By devotion. Bhakti. Again, the third time this comes is at the very end of the Bhagavad Gita. The 46th verse of 18th chapter. The last chapter. (laughs) Yata pravritti bhutanam yena sarvam idam tatam siddhim manava from which has emerged all activity in the universe of all beings, by which all this is pervaded. Same phrase. That one, worshipping that one by your work, by your action, you will attain perfection. When you recite this I don't know if people have heard Swami Ranganathan ji immediately reminded of him this was one of his favorite verses I can see it clearly sitting there you know, erect and sharp by worshipping the Lord by one's actions activities one attains to perfection again talking about God there so In three places. Very beautiful. There is another one, another place in the ninth chapter, fourth verse, a similar, a similar phrase is used. Just one word is, "Maya Tatamidam sarvam, by me all this is pervaded. Instead of saying, by that all this is pervaded, by me all this is pervaded. Krishna says, uh, matsthani sarvabhutani, uh, nacha matsthani, he says, Mastani Bhutani in ninth chapter. Yes, ninth chapter, fourth verse. Um, by the way, if you are impressed, how is he cruising all across the Bhagavad Gita? <laughs> I could see that in some of your faces. Don't be impressed, I put in the hard work. <laughs> I mean, uh, I was studying it today. But yes, there are people. Uh, I have personally known people who who are so well versed in this that uh, it's, I am using their work actually. So that's why it seems like magic. <laughs> Somebody else has put in the hard work. Maya sarvam jagat abhyakta See, you can understand it immediately. All this is pervaded by me in my unmanifest invisible form. What is the unmanifest invisible form? Pure being, isness. All beings are in me. Watch the magic here. All beings are in me, yet I am not in them. What does it mean? Imagine somebody mistakes a rope for a snake. Can you say that snake, though mistaken, that snake is in actually in the rope. The rope can say, yes, it may be mistaken in me, but I am not in that snake. That doesn't exist at all. Similarly, what does it mean? It's only this, only the rope which exists. It's only pure being, it's only God, it's only absolute which exists. It's not that the absolute exists and the world exists and the absolute exists in the world. No. That's what Krishna is saying. That is pure Advaita. The next verse, after that, the tenth verse, uh, the the f- fifth verse of ninth chapter, it says, These two verses together, when we come to it, eventually, many, many months later, fourth and fifth verses of ninth chapter, they establish Advaita Vedanta and Maya. What he says is there, that I pervade this entire universe in my invisible form, unmanifest form as pure being. All beings are in me, and I am in them. And the next he says, in truth, none of them are in me either. He flat out contradicts himself. He says, all beings are me. The next verse he says, they are not in me. Pashyame yoga look at the power of my maya. Which means they are appearing in me. Can the lake, lake, loon lake not say, I pervade all these trees and plants and mountains and skies in the lake by my... Power, water, (laughs) by, by my existence as water. All these plants and lakes and mountains and sky is in me. Yet I am not in them. And in truth, none of them are in me. Would it not be perfectly right? Yes. Exactly like that. That's the lake. Here it means you. You, the pure being, pure awareness. Entire world of your experience... Appears in you, shines in you, disappears in you. You pervade it all. All Alright. Now, when I say these things, remember my sources are of course the original Bhagavad Gita and a variety of commentaries, ancient, medieval and modern. Once in a while, if something occurs to me, I will tell you. But I will flag it so that you know it's not coming from any venerable source, it's just coming from this guy. So what occurred to me today, this is not from any kind of commentary. When I was looking at the three plus one, four occurrences of this phrase, second chapter, eighth chapter, ninth chapter, 18th chapter, you know what occurred to me? Notice, the 18th chapter clearly is karma yoga. Worshipping the Lord by your action, you attain to perfection. The whole teaching of Sri Ramakrishna, Vivekananda. Seeing Shiva in all beings, worship them with service. Mm -hmm. Shiva jnana jiva seva. Exactly, it follows from that. The one in the 8th chapter. Labhyastu bhakti ananya. It is attainable by one-pointed devotion. By love, by devotion. Bhakti yoga. Mm -hmm. Then the ninth chapter. Very clearly puts out Advaita. All beings are me, yet I am not in them. And truly speaking, not, none of these are in me. The universe is actually not in me. They are not of the same level. Brahman and Maya both are implied there. Jnana Yoga. And this one, though we have been explaining it in, in terms of Advaita following Shankara, actually, um, this is what is called Sankhya Yoga. The chapter name, chapter is Sankhya Yoga. Uh, it, the, the very language here is a Sankhya language. Advaita follows from this, no doubt, especially in the earlier verse, 16th verse. But you have to interpret it. If you take it without interpretation, you actually get a kind of Sankhya. Sankhya and, and um, yoga, they are what are called, um, they are uh, sister philosophies. In Sanskrit, Samana Tantra Darshana. They are, not, um, they are not in conflict. Raja Yoga is the way of meditation. So now you have got the four occurrences of this one verse from which follow Raja Yoga in order, Raja Yoga, then um, Bhakti Yoga, Jnana Yoga and Karma Yoga. So just that just sort of seemed to me that this has been put in these four ways throughout the book. But anyway. And he goes on to say that one practical implication is of this pure being which is unchanging nobody can destroy it there is nobody nothing can destroy this pure being which means he's talking to arjuna it does not depend on whether you fight or you do not fight what will happen all these bodies these personalities they will die they will die they are they belong to that category which never really came into existence because they belong to the category of the false the apparent they have borrowed existence. They are bound to lose it. All those you are worried about, whether you you kill them in war or you do not kill them in war, no death is certain for all of them. None of us can avoid death. Death of the body is certain. And your death is impossible. You cannot die. You, the real you, the spirit dies not. The body will die. There's absolutely nothing to be worried about there. We that's what what terrorizes the world, death. That's the final instrument of maya which keeps us in terror. And he says here this message of hope. Be clear about this. The body will not survive no matter what you what you want to do to it. No matter how much gluten free and yoga and <laughs> Um, And the self, pure self, is never subject to death. It really does not depend on what you do. That's what he wants to tell Arjuna. What else do I want to say about this? A couple of points. One is, by this pure being is pervaded this entire universe. By that pure being is pervaded this entire universe. Now when Brahman pervades everything, pure being pervades everything, it does so equally. All differences are in Maya. There is no difference in Brahman. In the high and the low, in the living and the non-living, in male and female, in people of different races, in uh, human beings and animals alike, the same divinity. Vivekananda put it, he says, in, in his inimitable way, he says, verily the lowest worm is brother to the Nazarene. Jesus Christ, Avatara, Krishna, Christ, Buddha, the highest product we can think of uh, in, uh, in our civilization, in huma- humanity. Unreachable almost. Divinity in human form. And he says the worm is brother to that. In what he means is, it's same reality everywhere. Yes, manifestation is different. There is difference. There is tremendous difference. But all difference is in manifestation, is in maya. In reality, there is only one, one reality. This is the tremendous conclusion of Advaita Vedanta. So this is one thing. This, the oneness of all existence and the sameness, in down deep, the sameness. Hence, what is the, what is the uh, practical implication? The practical implication is that when we inhabit this world of difference, when we inhabit this world of difference, the implication is respect, the implication is harmony. Don't fight, don't murder or kill, especially in the name of religion. You can see shades of my World, of, world of Parliamentary talk here. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so harmony follows from this, the sameness of the divinity. How can you condemn another person, another race, another gender? Because the same divinity is there. Yeah, are you going to condemn God? Swami Vivekananda was, uh, was, uh, was he never spared the Hindus for their faults. You know, very interesting how he defended Hinduism staunchly when he was here against all critics. But when he went back to India, he pointed out the faults of, uh, of the Hindu society at that time in no uncertain terms. He said, no religion in the world preaches the glory of, of, the, of human nature, which means the divinity in such magnificent wonderful terms as hinduism does but no religion in the world treads on the necks of the on tramples on the necks of the poor and the weak in the in the such fashion as hinduism does which means through casteism he pointed out two things one is the oppression of the masses another one neglect of the women he says the two great national sins of india he pointed out the, this does not follow from advaita vedanta it cannot Vedanta is the most, Advaita is the most democratic of all religions. In what sense? The central idea of democracy is, who said that, I forget. Very recently I heard it, somebody saying it. Democracy is the central idea, the central idea of democracy is that political power lies in each of us equally. And the central idea of Vedanta is divinity, God lies in each of us equally. That's why he's, he thought uh, that the United States, he loved America for its uh, ideals of freedom and human dignity. He felt this country is most suited for Advaita. Not so much India, though Indians take it very quickly, because they're used to it culturally, but India has, uh, it has a very ancient society, stratified layer after layer of hierarchy, and tremendous burden of history is there. But here he found, here is a fresh land Uh, which values freedom and uh, liberty, uh, freedom and dignity. What he tried to give was a spiritual philosophy for the ideals enshrined in the uh, American Constitution, actually. Anyway, that's apart from our our talk today. Um, There is one uh, one more thing that i wanted to point out before we go further oh an interesting point again a little bit of sanskrit grammar here the second line it says vinasham abhyasya asya nakashchit kartum arhati if i translate the first line said that indestructible reality by that everything here is pervaded that And remember why he said that, because it's not accessible to senses. That reality by which this samsara is pervaded, that means beyond our senses, this means which we can interact with. But strangely enough, in the second line he says, that, uh, he says, nobody can destroy this unchanging reality. He uses the word asya, of this unchanging reality, nobody can accomplish the destruction thereof. This is, I'm trying to, it's clumsy in English if you translate that way. But what I want to point out is, for Brahman, for that ultimate reality, he has used two words. In the first sentence he says, that reality. In the second sentence he says, this reality. Pointing out thereby, it's not inaccessible. It's not beyond our reach. It is in fact continuously accessible. How is it accessible? Didn't you just say we can't see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, touch it, we can't walk to it, we can't hold it by our hands. It's not accessible to any of our instruments. It's accessible in this way. Let us say all of this, all of you here are accessible. What is the proof that I experience you? I will say I see you. What is the proof that you are here today? I will say, I saw them. So the proof for your existence here is my seeing you. Seeing, proof for existence. Hold on to this. Seeing is the proof for existence. Now, what is the proof for the existence of my eyes? Will you say seeing? No, I can't see my eyes. Let me make it even more interesting. What is the proof that there was no elephant in the room? If there was an elephant, I would have seen it. I, don't, I didn't see it, therefore there is no elephant. The proof for the non-existence of the elephant is, I did not see it. The proof for your existence here today is, I saw it. So the proof of existence is seeing, proof of non-existence, not seeing. Now I cannot see my eyes, therefore my eyes do not exist. What's wrong with it? Uh, this rule applies only to objects to objects, objects are revealed by your awareness. The presence of objects is revealed by your awareness. The absence of objects is revealed by your awareness. Both the presence and absence of objects reveal your awareness. They they point to the fact that you are consciousness itself. It's a very crucial point. How do you see God in every experience? This is the answer to that. In every experience, God is being continuously revealed to us. Let me use two words, revealed and manifested. The light reveals this book to you, here. And the book manifests the existence of light. You, the consciousness, you, the existence, You reveal this world, you give this world its existence. And this world of appearances manifests your being, that you are pure being, pure awareness. Some of you are getting it. Isn't it beautiful? Yes? Uh, Right. What did I say? Both the presence of objects and the absence of objects are revealed by your consciousness and both the presence and absence of objects reveal your consciousness. How do you say that you are sleeping? When you are able to say, when you wake up, how did you say that you are sleeping? Because something revealed sleeping to you. Not at that moment, you cannot say because mind is not working. Uh, Senses are not working. Mind and senses have gone to sleep. Hence you cannot think, I am sleeping. You cannot say, I am sleeping. If you could say that, you wouldn't be sleeping. You the funny thing, uh, mothers, they test the children. Uh, has the good boy gone to sleep? If he has gone to sleep, his uh, right leg will move. And the right leg moves a little bit and the mother <laughs> is just pretending. No kids, you have a hard time to put them, to, to make them sleep. <laughs> they become hyperactive just before bedtime. So you cannot uh, express that I am sleeping. And yet it's an experience. It's an experience of absence. It's not the absence of experience. Deep sleep is not the absence of experience. Yeah. By these words, that and this, that pure being points out it's not something that you can experience with your senses. This pure being... Points out that it is continuously available to you as your very self, which gives existence and um, consciousness. In in uh, it, it reveals the world and gives existence to the world. In Sanskrit, the words are very nice. Satasputi. Satta means existence. Sat means existence. Satta means that borrowed existence. Chit means consciousness. purti means the shining forth. Spuran in Sanskrit, shining forth, expression, the world is, it shines forth, yes? Uh, Swamiji, so the existence that the real I gives to, let's say, this animal, is it different from the existence that like, someone else gives to that animal? What someone else? So when you say someone else, there is no someone else. There is only one being. The moment you say the real I, look at the language you used. The real I is a limitless I. Think about it. You you can, if you get what, what we're talking about, you can actually check in your own experience. Is awareness limited? Where is the end of awareness? Is it limited in time? Does it come to an end? Time flows in awareness. Is it limited in space? I have given the example. One monk in Uttarakhand said. Hey how do you say. Swami stop. How do you say that I am all pervading. I am here. I am not even there. How can I be all pervading? Question. I am here. I am not even there. How can I be all pervading? Answer was immediate. Answer was. Ah but here and there. Are they both not in your awareness? In your dream You are standing here looking at something there Here and there, in fact the entire universe in your dream Was it not in your mind? There is no limit to awareness, no limit to pure being All limits are in pure being If you say that, you say, so what, how does it relate to my question? It relates in this way If all limits are in pure being, then where is the limit between you and another person? Bodies are limited. They are different. Minds are limited. Consciousness flowing through this mind is the person who is asking the question now. But that consciousness in itself is the same for everybody. Or rather, in that, what did we say? In that awareness all beings exist. Or they do not even exist. That awareness alone exists. There is no anybody else. What you are saying at a practical level, yes, there is a difference. The way you are perceiving this and the way she is perceiving, he is perceiving, slightly different. Because you are perceiving it through, through this medium of your senses and through the filter of your mind. Same for each of us. But that's at a practical level. Yes, each of us has a difference. We put a little layer of, on the world that we perceive. We, do not, we really do not have any access to the world outside. Everything that we perceive is through the medium of our minds. And our minds arise, play around and disappear in awareness. Awareness and mind are not the same. So my answer to you is, no, the answer to your question lies in your very very question. Does someone else give a different existence to it? No. There is no someone else. In your dream, for example, you see so many people and so many places and somebody tells you, all of this is given existence by you, the dreaming mind. And if you ask, all those people, are they giving some existence to all these things also? All those people are also given existence by your dreaming mind. In the dream. Here, not by your mind. You are not dreaming all this. It is rather in pure being, pure consciousness, all things appear. Yeah. Yes. So everything. Yeah, I'm repeat that. Awareness. Impacts existence, yes. There are possibly things that I'm not even aware of, hmm. but they do exist. Uh-huh. And even if uh, awareness is not mine alone, it's shared by everybody, uh-huh. there might be things that exist that nobody's aware of. Right. So how, do you how do you explain that? But remember, the way you are using awareness and what is meant here is slightly different. The way you are using awareness is Awareness channeled through our minds What you are saying is This awareness in me the person Has made certain things its object Certain things the awareness is seeing Certain things it's hearing Certain things it's remembering This is my area of knowledge And beyond this is a vast area of darkness Where I don't know And so is it It is true for all of us But this is awareness Which is what is called It is channeled through Uh, A body and a mind Certainly for us There are things we know Things we do not know But all of this Bodies, minds, senses And Vishaya objects They all appear In that, that ground of reality Again, very easy to understand If you take your dream world In your dream world You have a world In that you are also there And there That person who is there in the dream That person knows certain things And also has the feeling There are many things in this world Which I do not know But they exist even if I do not know. But is it true? What is true is that all of that exists only or appears only in the dreamer's mind. From the point of view of the person inside the dream, there are things which are known and things unknown. Both known and unknown are appearances in consciousness. We have to think like that. Tremendous, really, what he's saying. Right here itself, Vedanta is already over. <laughs> all right. Now, he goes on. In contrast to this, what about the bodies, our minds, these things of the world? They all have a beginning and an end. So he says. Eighteenth verse, Krishna says. ime <laughs> deha." Anta vanta ime deha Nitya sokta shari rinaha yasya these bodies of the eternal, imperishable, immeasurable embodied self are said to have an end. Therefore, fight, O descendant of Bharata. Now what about this life? This, first of all, this particular body, this particular manifestation in awareness, it has a beginning, it has grown, it, has, it will age, it will pass away. Do not worry about it. As long as it exists, take care of it, use it, Act in this world Very interesting What follows from all this high philosophy Tasmat Yudhasva Again and again and again Krishna He has a motive in all of this To engage Arjuna in the Mahabharata war But what follows from What seems to be a very abstract philosophy Is a philosophy of action It enables you to act properly in this world Without attachment, without ambition, greed Without fear and terror it enables you to act with serenity in this world. To do the best you can through that particular body and mind. Tasmat Yudhyasva. Fight the battle of life. O Bharata. O, o descendant of the Bharata. Ime deha. These bodies are with beginnings and ends. With ends. Which means with beginning and end. And they are appearances of what? Nityasya. Of the eternal reality. Which you are. And that eternal reality seems to possess a body now. It's called shariri, the embodied. Embodied does not mean there is a body and then you are filled into the body, you are poured into the body somehow. No, it means just that I accept this body as, as mine. In Hindi this is "Swikriti matra. You just say this is mine. When one begins to see this, if you put some attention to it, you will begin to see it is nothing more than an identification that it is mine. That's all that I say. It really there is no connection between you and the body. Imagine where we have gone from from I am the body and nothing else to now we are saying there's nothing to be there's no connection between you and the body. Shari Rina, the embodied. Embodied means the one who claims that this body is mine. Shariri. I remember. Swami Ramakrishna Shashi Maharaj. He was in Chennai at that time, and Sister Devamata, an American uh, lady, an American nun, she had gone to India to. She stayed for some time, uh, met many of the direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, including Shashi Maharaj, Swami Ramakrishna ji One day, she writes in her reminiscences, days in an Indian monastery. Uh, she writes in her reminiscences. That the Swami was talking about the difficulties he had faced in setting up that. And h- hardships, tremendous hardships he had faced. For example, I remember many such stories. Poverty, extreme poverty. And one day there is nothing to offer to the to Sri Ramakrishna. You know, there is a ritualistic offering every day. Um, bhog is offered. So nobody had bought anything. No offerings from devotees, fruits or sweets, something that can be offered. And... Swami Ramakrishnananda, who had one—that's why his name was Ramakrishnananda, one whose bliss is in Ramakrishna—at one pointed devotion to Sri Ramakrishna. He goes to Sri Ramakrishna in a, in a in a huff, and he says, "All right, if nothing comes today, I shall go to the beach in Madras on, on the, and I will make little like coconut balls. I'll make little balls of sand, and I'll come and offer that to you today as as." the offered food, and I will eat that and live mm-hmm. today. As he said this, somebody, little while later, somebody turned up at the monastery, a devotee with a lot of delicious foods and everything. So Sri Ramakrishna, he can be threatened. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Immediately all sorts of nice food came up and turned up. <laughs> anyway, so he told many stories and uh, how he had struggled Um He was a powerful figure, but apparently, and his talks were were not very, um, you know, very entertaining. Let's put it this way. He was a a very serious man, uh, Ramakrishnamarajji. So sometimes his talks were very poorly attended. But whatever, if even one person turned up, he would go and give the talk. He would go to different parts of Chennai and give the talk. He'd go in a rickshaw sometimes and give the talk there. He wouldn't touch money. He would ask people gave money, so he would ask them them to tie it on his dhoti. Uh, donations for the monastery, and it so happened one day in torrential rain, and that place is flooded. He wades through knee deep water, dirty water in, in the in the sewers there, to go to the place where he has to give, give a talk. And he goes there because he has to give a talk there. Nobody has turned up. He sits there, gives the talk, and comes back. Yeah. So. He says, I'm not doing it for a person. I'm offering it to the Lord. The Lord is always present. They seriously meant it. And so on. So many, many experiences he tells. And Sister Mata writes that I was indignant. Why should a person like Swami Ramakrishnananda, this saintly person, why did he have to suffer so much? I felt so bad. So I said to him, "Why, Swami, why did you have to suffer so much? And then she writes, he looked, Startled and surprised and he said, what are you saying? My real life is infinite. Let the Lord play with this little life as he will. Nitya of the eternal. This little life, born yesterday to pay it to die tomorrow. What is it to you? Give it to the Lord and let the Lord play with it as he will. So that is what he says. Nitya syokta And and thus act. Don't sit idly. Act. Do what is in front of you. Anashino. Cannot be destroyed. Aprameya. All right. Let me explain this important point. Aprameya means not an object to the pramanas. That means the instruments of knowledge. How do we know something? By seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. By inferring through science by um, you know through uh, logic inference by testimony from others we know in a various ways uh, in in various uh, sources of knowledge are there for us however all you know whatever you know you can know through Google today (laughs) so all of these are called Pramana which gives you knowledge and this ultimate reality aprameya it's not an object for any of these Pramanas you can read about it in a book Even Google can tell you about it. It can tell you lots about Vedanta. But it really will not give you enlightenment. You cannot grasp it directly through any of this. Just the way you can see it with your eyes, you can touch it with your hand. You can say, I know it. In that way, you cannot know Brahman. So it is called aprameya, not an object to the sources of knowledge. Sources of knowledge, pratyaksha, that means direct perception. Um, then Anumana, inference, and then Shruti, that means that—that uh, that is uh, um, scripture, testimony, instructions, uh, instructions from uh, trustworthy sources. Shabda um, Shabda Pramana, is this? And there are secondary pramānas also, I mean, there technically there's something called uh, supposition, like uh, arthāpatti, uh, there is anupalabdhi, absence itself is a pramāna. Uh, we will not go into it, a lot of technicalities. The whole system, the whole thing is called epistemology, the science of knowledge. It's a branch of philosophy, a very big branch of philosophy. But the point here is, all the sources, epistemic sources, pramānas, do not operate on brahman. So this leads to a problem. The problem is, all this you are saying, what is the proof? Again, the same thing. Proof that this book exists, I see it. I can touch it. All of us see it. So it exists. What is the proof that this pure being, pure consciousness exists? What is the proof? I was talking to a philosopher recently, NYU. And he said, what is the proof? But you are saying that it exists, so such a thing. aprameya. You know what is the proof? The answer is there in that uh, example of the eyes seeing. What is the proof? You know what an Advaitin will say? He will say, all the sources of proof, the meto- these methods of knowledge, Pramanas, they all operate because of it. Huh. That consciousness is the one Which powers, which lights up all the pramanas. How do you see? Do the eyes see? No. It is consciousness which sees through the mind and the eyes. Do the ears hear? No. It is consciousness which hears being channeled through the mind and the ears. Does the intellect do science? No. It is consciousness channeled through the intellect which, which does science. It is consciousness, in consciousness, and through consciousness, everything is happening. So this is the answer that Advaita Vedanta gives. It is not an object to pramānas, but all pramānas. The Sanskrit phrase is, pramāna, sarva-pramāna-prameya-vevahara. All activities, epistemic activities, are grounded in consciousness. You might say, so this, is a, this leads to the hard problem of consciousness, one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> yeah. And so a camera. There's a camera there. The camera, it's recording. Is it seeing? In a way, you can say it's seeing. It can record, and if it's connected to computers and devices, it can even react to things happening. But does it have a first-person experience of seeing inside? Is there something which is seeing? Can the first-person XP, like you are seeing, colors, you are hearing sound, is that thing going on in the camera? It's recording uh, light and sound. No. Not even the most uh, ambitious Sony executive will claim our cam- cameras are conscious. No. So what is that? Behind all epistemic uh, access is Consciousness. It is not an object to sources of knowledge, but it is that which powers all sources of knowledge. Therefore, I leave you with this thought. In all knowledge, it is available. Just as eyes are available in all seeing, though they are not something you see. Mind is there in all thinking. Similarly, consciousness is there in all experience. Our attention is—it flows through the objects of experience, but if you know this knowledge is there with you, you can know that consciousness within quotes. No, you can know it by being it. Yeah. Brahma Veda, Brahmaiva bhavati. The knower of Brahman is none other than Brahman. It, yes. So, two questions. This lady first, and then I'll go to you. Yeah. Uh, let's call it pure being awareness, pure being awareness. I will modify it, uh, that's right, I'll modify it in this way. She asked, is the continuity in our experience due to pure being? Let's call it being awareness, Sat Chit, existence consciousness. The continuities and the perceived discontinuities are all due to that pure being. There are perceived discontinuities. Deep sleep, anesthesia, discontinuities, All amnesia, memory failure, very boring Vedanta class. <laughs> the class went away in a twinkling of an eye. What happened? <laughs> Mind was elsewhere. So, <laughs> but that is also revealed by the same continuous awareness. Yes, question. Yes. That will come in the 13th chapter. Very powerful statement. Vidhi I am the consciousness in all bodies and minds. Literally, I am the knower of the field in all fields. This relates directly to your question. The gentleman here who asked the question. Other people. Because we feel I am the knower of this field. This body is a field. In this I am there as the knower. Krishna says, how many knowers are there? He says, there is only one knower. Apparently, there are many knowers. With respect to bodies and minds, many, many knowers. With respect to consciousness behind the body-mind, one consciousness. That is what is called God in Vedanta. I am the consciousness. I am the knower of the field in all fields. God is therefore available to us in every experience, inside yourself, as yourself. But as your real self, capitalist. There was another question that, yes. That's the last question. True, we don't know. In fact, the only thing that you know for sure is that you see, you don't even know that we see. <laughs> How do you know? How do you know? Uh, you, because you don't have access to our first-person experiences. We could all be zombies, for all you know. <laughs> but, uh, yes, Halloween just passed. the Yes. The pure being imparts yes. And so it imparts to the camera. The camera. Yes. Ah, yes. So, Correct. The difference between living and non-living. So this is an issue which is easily resolved. How does Vedanta distinguish between living beings and non-living beings? From Vedantic perspective, there is only one existence consciousness. And all things are names and forms. But among these names and forms, there are living names and forms like us. We call them living beings. And there are non-living names and forms like tables, chairs, and the camera. How do you distinguish between them? Vedanta says the word is right there, living. In Sanskrit, prana. Prana means it's a part of what is called a subtle body. Right now, we have two bodies. One is a physical body, and one is a subtle body. You see what proof? Again, Vedanta, always go to your experience. You have a dual experience. You experience a physical body which is public, others can see it, your doctor can examine it. But you have an inner experience, thoughts, feelings, emotions, right? You seem doubtful. (laughs) Thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, memories, questions, all of those are there. Your doctor cannot see it. Your doctor can only go up to the brain. Inner experience you have got. That inner experience is, where, is happening in what is called the subtle body, sukshma sharira, which constitutes of, which is constituted of the pranamaya kosha, manomaya kosha, and vijnanamaya kosha, three. There's a causal body beyond that, but we'll not bother with that. So these three are called the subtle body. Now the distinction between living beings and non-living beings is, living beings have the subtle body, which has prana, which is life, mind and intellect, and emotions, ideas, and memories, the whole person is there. That is called the Jivatma. And beyond that is of course, causal body and then consciousness. So, existence consciousness is there in that camera also. But what happens is, because there is no subtle body there, the, only the existence aspect is manifest as a thing. But there is no person in there, because there is no subtle body in there. That's how we distinguish. You'll say, why is there not a subtle body there? We can't see. If there was a subtle body, it would be a person. This is an important question, because in these days when AI is being seriously discussed, so I have had actually people working with AI in um, some of the most advanced labs in this country. In a couple of questions, a couple of times I've been asked this question, can this AI, they are talking about a particular project which is still there, can it become conscious in the sense you are talking about? Um, So they have many theories about that. From a Vedantic perspective, if you can design a subtle body, if you can generate a subtle body, it'll become conscious. Because existence consciousness is always there. Existence is manifest, this is, this is. But there is no inner awareness there. There's an inner awareness here because consciousness is also borrowed. See, it happens this way. Physical body borrows sat, being. Subtle body borrows being and awareness existence consciousness this is called chidabhasa reflected consciousness again your experience you not only have thoughts but those thoughts shine in consciousness if you note your own ex- inner experience that consciousness which you are feeling now that is not pure consciousness that's a consciousness associated with a thought shining in a thought that's called reflected or in sanskrit palita chidabhasa a shadow of consciousness, a reflection of consciousness. It's like the sun's light being reflected from the moon. The moon appears luminous for all practical purposes. Shines, gives light and all of that. But it's not luminous. It's borrowing light from the sun. The mind in itself, it borrows existence and consciousness from the Atman. The body borrows only existence it cannot because it does not have the capacity to borrow consciousness so this is the distinction again if you say what how what what gives you the right to make this distinction i say look at your experience science cannot explain this i'll just leave you with an i can't resist this obviously you've heard of the hard problem of consciousness i've been repeating it again and again science has a problem Uh, neuroscience, that you go up to the brain, but after that, how it has a first-person experience, you can't talk about it. They have a huge debate going on. And New York, NYU, all of this is at the nerve center of that debate. I I mentioned that last week, week before last, there was actually a a, a workshop, a colloquium, where some of the top philosophers were present, and the Advaita Vedanta perspective on the hard consciousness of problem. That was uh, hard, hard problem of consciousness was discussed. So it's come to that level now. But on the other hand, philosopher Gallant Strawson from uh, UT Austin, University of Texas Austin, he says, "Forget the hard problem of consciousness. There is no hard problem of consciousness. There's the hard problem of matter." What he says is, is very advaitic. He's not saying it in a reductionist materialist way. He's just saying the opposite. He says, "Consciousness, we know what it is. You're all conscious. We know. We are conscious. Matter appears to us in consciousness." And we investigate it with science, common sense, science, whatever. And as we investigate it with science, it disappears before our eyes. The more we have investigated matter, it seems to be only structure, nama rupa. Where is the substance? It keeps disappearing. What is matter? How matter? We make distinction. Science tells us a lot about what how matter behaves. It it is continuously failing to tell us what matter is. What is the thing there? The moment you investigate the thing, it breaks up into smaller and smaller and smaller particles. Yeah. Atoms to subatomic particles to nucleus to protons and neutrons to quarks to superstrings goes further, unimaginably receding further and further back. What are you getting? Jim Holt said in his book, Why Does the World Exist? We are getting only name, we are getting only structure. Structure in Maya is name and form. The more science investigates matter, all you keep getting is name and form. Substance disappears. The more clearly you investigate it, the more it fades away. So he says, Strausson says, he calls it the hard problem of matter. You, you forget consciousness. Consciousness, everybody knows consciousness because we are conscious. And he says, we don't know what matter is. The more science has it has just shown us we have absolutely no idea what matter is. If you put the hard problem of consciousness and you put the hard problem of matter together, you get Advaita Vedanta, you get Tatva Asi. <laughs> On that we will end. <laughs> om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Ramakrishna Rupa namastu.